Hello, everybody. Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show, where we help you win at the game of business and marketing. As the name says, our listeners are business creators. They fall into four categories. We have our entrepreneurs, small business owners, and local business owners. We have marketing and business coaches. We have the folks who help others build their businesses. And on the other side of that coin, we have the do-it-yourselfers who love to have your own hands on the levers as you market and grow your business. If you're one or more of the above, take a moment, explore episodes, and discover how we help you win at the game of business and marketing at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. Also, check us out on iTunes. Every five-star rating is greatly appreciated, helps us help more business creators just like you. Be sure to subscribe because fresh content is added every single week, and we have over 130 episodes on Business Creators Radio Show. My name is Adam Homey. I'm your host. I am honored and thrilled by your decision to join us today. And in this episode, we are going to cover how to multiply your wealth as a business leader. Now, we've had topics on Business Creators Radio Show before about real estate investment. And we have heard about joint ventures. We have heard about how to basically come back from absolutely nothing, what it means to literally have a dollar or a penny in your pocket and then turn that into a million dollars. And we've explored some of the strategies. We've also explored some of the mindsets. I love these topics. Our audience loves these topics. Many of you love these topics. You write to me and you tell me. And for this reason, I'm so excited about what we're going to be covering today. Again, the title is How to Multiply Your Wealth as a Business Leader. And to help us gain some understanding on that, we have Kemi Egan of FreedomAcademies.com. And just to tell you a little bit about Kemi, she is the 27-time number one best-selling author of The Power of Real Estate Investing, founder of Freedom Academies, and host of the New World Real Estate Podcast. She's an entrepreneur, real estate investor, and trainer. After becoming homeless in her early 20s, Kemi set about finding out what it was that the successful and wealthy people in the world knew that she didn't. Within 12 months of making that decision, within one year, so take a picture, folks, and vision where are you going to be in one year from today, and hold that while you spend this next hour with us. Hold that picture. So within 12 months of making that decision, Kemi raised $1 million in joint venture finance to buy a real estate portfolio of $2 million. Her life was transformed, and she is now on a mission to help as many other people as possible create long-term wealth. And believe you me, long-term wealth is right up my alley. So, Kemi, welcome aboard. Hey, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, yeah, and you're joining us from, I believe you said, Portugal. It's amazing how we have people not only tune in from all over the world, but we have our guest experts coming in from all over the world. That is part of the power of the business creators movement. It is something we can do globally and real time, anytime from anywhere. So here I am sitting in the United States and you're in Portugal and we're having a real time conversation. I mean, how cool is that? It's amazing, isn't it? If you think yeah. just a few years ago, this could never have happened. We never would have connected. And you just don't get to have these conversations with amazing people. But now, because of some geniuses out there doing some amazing stuff, we get to chat and have a great time. 
Precisely, precisely. I mean, I have been uh, in business as a business owner for 13 years myself, and when I first jumped off the the corporate train and seized control of my own destiny, I could not have imagined it being this simple. I, I mean, even back that time, we were still talking about ridiculous international phone rates and how you're going to burn minutes on your cellular phone. If Skype even existed at the time, I'm not sure if it had made any traction. I don't even know if we had Skype at the time. Uh, I know that uh, the cellular phone I had was this little flip phone that I was all excited because I finally got one that took pictures. And now I have this <laughs> smartphone that I use so little I frequently just let it die. And I tell people I don't text don't text me. Uh, you don't get my cell phone number because I don't have one. I, it's like it's like I don't even want the thing. It's kind of weird uh, how far we've come. And part of that is because there's so much technology and it's so prevalent and it's made us so simple for us to do what we need to do. Sometimes I need a respite from it. Now, this is not one of those times. I'm very excited about the technology today. What I'm also excited about is if you could take a moment, Kemi, and before we dive into what we're going to do here, I read off your biography, and you have a great story there. But what I'd like to do is just learn more about your the intersection of your brilliance and passion and what drives you and motivates you to share this with the world. What is it like, what is your mission, and what is it that brings you to the point where you put so much energy and so much of your own love into doing this? Yeah, that's a really great question, Adam, and I'm really glad you asked because, you know, real estate in itself has got a pretty terrible reputation, right? There's a lot of people in the world that think anyone doing anything in real estate is a bit shady and it's a bit dodgy. And in a lot of ways, they're right. There's a lot of people doing some really dodgy things and out there to, to make money and not give back. So I really love it when people ask me why I do this and why I share because it gives me a chance to, to show you what I'm about and where I come from. And, you know, I grew up in a mixed race and single-parent family on the south coast of the UK predominantly. Um, right. There's a lot of addiction, there's a lot of uh, domestic violence, and all the stuff that goes on in that cycle of poverty. It didn't, you know, wealth wasn't really something that you talked about, you didn't aim for anything, you just kind of made it through the day. That was the goal. And I remember having conversations with my mum about... You know, I've always been young and I say to her, you know, one day, Mom, I'm going to buy your house. And in that kind of condescendingly loving way that only parents can do, yeah. she's like, yeah, yeah, of course you are. You know, where, where I come from, you don't even own your own home. You sure as hell don't buy other people's homes. So I started kind of understanding in my own little way quite young that I had to learn from people that had been there and done it. And all the traditional advice when you're growing up and you're in high school, you're in college, says, look, you need to get a degree, you need to get a profession, you need to have something to fall back on, money doesn't grow on trees, you've got to work hard for it. And all this other nonsense, for want of a better word, that goes on. So that's what I did. I went out and I got, um, did all my degrees, and I remember being about 13, actually, so before, I was in high school, 13, 14, and my teacher said to me, you know, can we, what are you going to do for a living? What are you going to do when you grow up? And I'm saying to her, you know what, I'm going to be a physical therapist. I want to be the best physical therapist in the world. Now, I have no idea if I'm entirely honest what that meant or why I wanted to be it. And I'm, I'm still not sure where that came from. But that's what I decided I was going to be. And she looked at me and said, you know what, if you're lucky, you're going to be a cleaner or a criminal. Yeah. Which from what we call an educator is pretty heartbreaking. Yeah, I know. I mean, 
growing up myself, uh, you know, the idea of having your own business and finding ways to make money other than working hard at a job uh, fell under this giant header of a get-rich-quick scheme. Now, when I was about, yeah, I mean, I had a little grass-cutting business. I mean, it wasn't much. I only had a handful of yards, but I did that to make some money. I helped my grandfather with a little garage sale he ran. That was always exciting as well. I mean, my thoughts never really were toward, I'm going to go get a job and draw a paycheck. Now, I started doing that because, you know, I turned 16 and I wanted my own car and to buy my own clothes and things like that. So I went and got a part-time job and that kind of set the cycle going. But even through that journey, because uh, there was about, if you if you look at it all together, there was a 10-year stretch from 1993, well, actually about 13 years, or no, 12 years, 1993 to 2005, where uh, at any given time, I was employed by another company and getting paid a paycheck in exchange for showing up for a certain amount of hours and delivering a certain type of value. Even throughout that, exactly. I, even without that, I made many attempts to discover other ways to make money. Um, I tried a couple multi-level marketing things, and uh, I didn't do so well with them, mostly because I didn't know then what I know now. I mean, take my skill set now and put put it back 10 years, and uh, I probably wouldn't need to do the Business Creators Radio Show because I'd be retired. Uh, <laughs> uh, back in the 1990s, when websites were just a brand new thing. I mean, today we talk about whether a website is mobile responsive. Back when I first got involved with websites, well, the big question of the day was whether it has frames or no frames. Boy, I bet you that takes some of our listeners back a few years. And I was, at, I was in college. I was a, my political science major. I was supposed to be writing my poli-sci term papers. But instead, I'm down there playing with my GeoCities website, which is not online anymore. So don't try looking for it. Believe me, I took care of that. <laughs> so um, so <laughs> I, I, I took care of that little, that little gap. And, uh, and at the time, I was very interested in competition auto sound. In other words putting a system in your car. I had a 1988 Camaro, and by the time I was done with it, the stereo system in the car was worth more than the car itself. In fact, when I sold the car, I actually sold the system and said they had to take the car with it because I just didn't feel like taking the system out of the car. <laughs> so um, now here I am down on these computers, and I'm, and, I'm, and I'm doing research on subwoofers and amplifiers and head units and and uh, dual battery isolators and and capacitors and all these other things that auto sound enthusiasts would know about, uh, you know, sound pressure levels, uh, bandpass versus uh, the various other types of subwoofer boxes, and they're, they're, and I'm seeing these stores we can buy this stuff online, and even then I was thinking to myself, wow, if only I could, if only I could do this myself, I could be really rich. I just didn't put enough time into it. But what I almost got involved in was a business that sold custom door panels for the inside of the doors of your car. So you can install speakers and angle them to create your soundstage. So you have a nice, balanced, concert-quality soundstage in your car. Uh, so you take out the, the panels your doors came with. You put in these custom door panels. I almost got involved in this uh, business. Uh, but I allowed myself to be discouraged because people said, well, that's just a get-rich-quick scheme. And then, you know, just to prove their point to say, and you know, you're talking about these get-rich-quick schemes, but when's the last time I saw you investing in the stock market? 
Kemi, Kemi, I was 20 years old. I I, I still don't know nothing from the stock market. That's what I have a financial advisor for. Uh, He educates me. I have conversations with him about this stuff regularly. And, you know, we discuss how to increase my investments, but I couldn't do it without him. That's not the intersection of my brilliance and my passion. I just want the money. I mean, uh, that's the, I, that, I, don't, I don't pretend to understand that stuff. Uh, and like real estate, uh, there are a lot of people who do extremely well with real estate, and there, unfortunately, are also a lot of people out there who get a realtor's license because it's easy, and you go to these, like, you know, these small-town newspapers where the town has, uh, like, maybe 500 residents, but somehow they have 82 realtors. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, right? Hell yeah. Yeah, it's like it's like it's like it's like a realtor in every street corner. Uh, but you're going to be sharing with us something different. But before we do that, there is a question that we ask everybody who comes on the Business Creators Radio Show and our listeners who tune in faithfully every week and have shown us the love and have helped us spread the Business Creators Movement. Know exactly what's coming next, and I'm going to do the little drum roll here. Always gets my cat excited when I do that. She gets all perky. And here it comes. Here in the Business Creators Radio Show, we provide the tools, techniques, and strategies to help entrepreneurs quickly grow their businesses. A lot of our listeners tell me they have everything they need to implement anything that we say they need to do except for time and money. This is a question we ask every expert who appears on our show. And what I like is not only the variety of different answers, but also the variety of ways the question is interpreted. So, how do time and money impact what you're going to share with us today. Wow, that's a great question. I think the best thing that I can share with you today about time and money is that the two are not correlated. So like you were saying, most people will say, oh, you can earn this much per hour, or I can do this many yards in a day, and that's what you're going to, what you're going to earn. And actually, the two are a mile apart. And this is something, you know, I'm not a math person. I don't like spreadsheets. I'm not a huge fan of spending my time analyzing stuff. But I do know full well that my income has very little to do with how much time I've got. And that's one of the best things I love talking about and sharing with. And it's when you learn to leverage other people's skills, other people's time, other people's experience, and sometimes their money. And as a result, your net worth goes up. So one of the things I've become very good at is finding people with skills that I don't have, finding them with people's time that I don't have, and leveraging what they've got to help increase my net worth and my the value I can share. Yes. Yes. As I said, as I said, we get so many different types of answers on this and so many different interpretations of the question. It's just a fantastic thing. And when we started asking that question very early in the history of the Business Creators Radio Show, it's just something that caught on and it, it applies to every episode we've ever done except one. So thank you very much for that. So what I'd like to start with here, Kemi, is since part of the thrust of what we're covering today is actually about investing in real estate is if you could bifurcate and differentiate for us the difference between real estate being a really expensive hobby or a really profitable business. Yeah, and that's, that's another great question. And the difference, there are a couple of differences, okay? And the first is everyone lives in a house uh, or lives in a property of some kind. And as a result, everyone thinks they're an expert in it. Which is why you see these shows that are, you know, make 100 grand in 25 seconds, flip a house tomorrow to make 10 grand, all these get-rich-quick stuff turns up because everyone thinks they're an expert in it. 
And as soon as you stop learning and as soon as you assume you know more, it becomes a really expensive hobby. But the two main differentiators are, the first one is when you buy real estate to make money, you don't buy it guessing. You don't buy it gambling. So if I buy something today, I am not assuming that it's going to go up in value in the next six months, 12 months, 18 months, 24 months. I'm absolutely not assuming that. Because as we saw in 08 and as we saw in 2000 and then we saw in 1991, that kind of time, stuff happens overnight that we're not privy to. So if we're making decisions based on what we think is going to happen or what we hope is going to happen, we're going to find ourselves in a whole heap of trouble. So when you buy a property, you have to buy it knowing you've got a couple of exits. And one of them might be that you know you can flip it. So you know that you're buying it maybe with a little bit of a discount, but you're spending a little bit of cash on it, and as a result, it's going to be worth a whole heap more. So let's say you're buying something that's worth at the moment 170k. You're buying it for 155. You're going to spend 10 grand on it, and then you're going to sell it for 200. There's quite a wide variance there. But what you know is, as it stands right now, it's worth less, or it's worth more than you paid for it. So that's kind of job one done. You don't need it to go up in value, because if you flipped it on straight away, there's someone in there that's going to come to you and say, right, this is what it's worth, and I can, I'm going to take it off your hands. And you've made 10, 15 grand, whatever it is, without blinking. Right. We're then going to go, right, with this property, assuming the world collapses tomorrow, assuming all the banks go under, assuming the worst happens and everything you said would never happen in a way it happens again, what, what am I going to do? Well, I'm probably going to find a renter. Okay, so is it, as a rental property, going to cover the mortgage, the finance, the taxes on it? That's a really simple yes or no question. And as long as the answer to that is yes, brilliant, you are winning. So you've got two exits on that property. The first is that you're going to flip it, and the second is that if the world happens and everything comes crumbling down, that you can keep it and you've got no problems there. So that's your first step in making sure it's not an expensive hobby. Your second is not doing everything yourself. And I mentioned it before when you asked me the question about time and money, and I'll talk about it, I'm sure, again and again right. as we chat today. I don't, but my, my big passion is leverage. You know, I don't, I don't love real estate in terms of bricks and mortar and roofing and plumbing. I, I really don't. I've got very little interest in it. I don't love dealing with tenants. I don't love dealing with contractors. What I do love is the leverage that real estate gives you. And for me, that means I have property managers that are fantastic at dealing with properties. They're fantastic at dealing with renters. They are great at communicating with contractors. So they do all of that. I, on the other hand, am really great at building relationships, at finding finance, at finding clients for our turnkey company. So I stick to doing that. And because we stick to everyone on our team sticks to doing what they're great at, there's none of those borders crossed, as we were saying before, and no one's doing something that actually they're not an expert in. So by making sure that you have a team of people around you that are top draw, they're absolutely brilliant at what they do, you don't make expensive mistakes. So I see a lot of people, and I have been completely, but they're like, I say to them, you know, what did you do today? Oh, I went out and I had to change a lock, and then... I had to paint this wall before a renter came in and, and I had to do this and I had to do that. And they're talking about twenty, fifty, a hundred dollar jobs that they could get someone else to do. 
And in the same time, they could be doing something that makes them five grand. You know, they could have taken on a client for their investing company. They could have raised some cash. And in that instance, when you start filling your time doing $100 jobs and not the real high-value stuff, you make it a really expensive hobby and you start losing money and losing your focus and your passion more importantly. Because, you know, we want to do the things that we enjoy about life. And for me, I love real estate because I can have a real estate business that I don't have to be in and I can spend my time doing the things that I genuinely enjoy, which is maybe some time with friends or travelling, you know, instead of in Portugal at the moment. If I allowed that actually into my business, I only would not be doing as well because I'm not as good at it as my team. Right. But I wouldn't be doing the things that I love. Yeah, a couple things. Yeah, a couple things I uh, noticed in what you were saying there. So let's start with the last one first. Is you see that you have a lot of people who are investing in real estate, but they're going around basically doing their own staging and their own curb appeal stuff when really that's not going to be putting any money in their pocket at all. I mean, so, you know, a lot, a lot of units, particularly when we're talking about rental units, uh, even if you have great tenants who take great care of the place and even clean it real nice before they leave, you know, such a rarity, correct? Uh, I'm one of the, probably one of the very few tenants that will clean the place and leave it as good. Uh, I mean, because this is just something I believe in. Um, I, uh, the last place I rented before I got my current place, I cleaned it so well, they gave me back my cleaning deposit because they said they didn't need to clean it. Because it's just, it's just it's just my belief that you leave something better. Than no, you, it's good effort. You, you you leave something better than you found it. Uh, but even so, even so, even if you have a tenant that good, you might decide, you know, I'm going to throw a fresh coat of paint on the wall, or you know, I've been wanting to replace a carpet on that thing for two years, but I just didn't want to bother with it while there was somebody in there. But since they're out, let's do it now. Uh, you know, little you know, because. When you don't have a tenant, is the best time to do uh, some upgrades and some maintenance that can raise the value of the unit. But why would somebody be doing their own painting when they could be doing the deals that cause 10 of these units to be rented out and get all that upgrade maintenance stuff done for less than the cost of one of those rentals? Exactly. And that's a real big question. And I think part of it is because in the entrepreneurial mindset, I'm sure you saw, we have this thing where it's like a badge of honor. The harder you work, the better it is. You know, oh, I do 80 hours a week, I do 100, I do 110, I do it all myself. And it's this whole bravado or, or whatever it is, I don't even know. The mental thing, we have to do everything by ourselves. Right. And as a result, we kind of run around, we try and do everything because, you know, we can, and I'm a jack of all trades, and that's great. And I think the second thing is that we when we start off, we're often cautious about money. But here's a really interesting thing. If you figure out what you are, what you earn per hour, so let's say you're self-employed and you're on $50,000 a year, divide that by the number of hours you work, and let's say you earn $20 an hour. Right. Anything that you can outsource that is costs you less than that has to go straight away because you're, you're losing money just the second you get out of bed and start doing this stuff. The high value of where you want to start spending the time. Now, you might look at your year last year, so I do this quite a lot, and I'll say, you know what, I spent 100 hours, for example, last year networking, and in that 100 hours, I raised a million dollars. Brilliant. So what does that make my hourly rate? 
So I need to then make sure that everything I'm doing is worth more than that hourly rate. Otherwise, I should be spending that hour doing something else and something that's way more valuable to my business and my team. Yeah. See, see, here's how I, here's how I look at it. Um, and this years and years ago, I I really struggled with this whole leverage thing. I used to own a web development firm, and we had three project managers, six web designers, two virtual assistants, and a partridge in a pear tree. Now, this thing was supposedly leverage, right? But it, se- but it seemed like no matter what I did, every single one of the clients, and we had 47 clients at one point. This is a pretty big deal. Uh, they only wanted to deal with me. And they would consciously remove their assigned project manager from conversations and try and deal only with me. And I would just keep forwarding the email back to the project manager and say, deal with your clients and all that. Uh, The reason I bring this up is because that model ultimately failed for me, not because it wasn't lucrative. Uh, In fact, it was extremely lucrative. I made fantastic money doing it, but it ate away at my soul. And the reason why it did is because I came up with a realization. Now, some of the people who were on my team at the time are very good friends of mine to this day. In fact, I know one is an avid listener of the Business Creators Radio Show. She's probably tuned in right now. So she knows what I'm talking about if she's listening right now when I say this, that I never really could expect people to be as focused on my business as I ever could be. I mean, to me, it was my business, it was my passion. To them, I was their client. They were helping me serve my clients, which is exactly as the world should be. So when you have people who you are leveraging your business, you know, using for gain leverage in your business, rather, uh, what are some of the things that you have found have worked to get people as much as possible as excited about your business as you are? Yeah, and you're absolutely right. You know, no one is going to be as excited about your business as you are. And that's, that's the right thing, because no one should be. If there's someone else that's more excited than you are, you should probably sell up. It's time to shut your doors. But there are a few things you can do that I found are really effective. And the first thing is find out what that person, and you have to look at each member of the team, really individually, motivates them and what moves them. And we all assume it's money. And actually, in my experience, more often than not, it isn't money. It might be respect, it might be self-worth, it might be a new title, it might be pat on the back. Who knows, whatever it is that motivates that person, figure out what that trigger is. You know, one of our property managers doesn't care about money, but she loves to know that I think she's doing an incredible job. So the best way I can keep her motivated is by every month or so we'll go out to dinner with a group of us i'll make a point of saying you know what you did an incredible job we've hit these targets we've achieved this blah 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 well done i really appreciate your work if something comes up and it's raised to my attention that she's handled it incredibly well i'll email her i'll pick up the phone and be like that was that was brilliant thank you so much for your time you went above and beyond there and it takes you know two ten minutes of my time but it makes her feel special and it makes her feel valued and that's what keeps her ticking along. And the times that I have become overwhelmed or become distracted maybe by big projects and I've stopped giving her the attention that she needs, I've noticed a chain results that she achieved, which is really clear. And it's something that I then, as a, as a business owner, as a, a people manager, I'm able to, to monitor going, is there someone, whether it's me, my partner, or... Someone else is that someone saying to her, look, this is what's going to, you know, you are rocking my world. Thank you so much. 
So that's a really huge thing. But don't assume that it's money that motivates people and be really clear on when you find out what it is, you're giving that to them. Make sure that it might seem like not a big deal for you, but for them, if that's everything, make sure they're getting it, you know, make sure they're getting there it is. I think the other big thing in building these teams is that as entrepreneurs, we like to think we have all the answers because more often than not, we've started this business from scratch and therefore, at some point or another, we've had to have all the answers because there's no one else to turn to. But as a result, when we go to employ people, it might be our ego talking, it might be just what we're used to, we go and we look for people that are like ourselves. So you go and are happy to get stuck in and do stuff, or if you're outgoing and you're a salesman type person, you might go and look for another salesman. If you're a bit of an introvert and you are a very numbers orientated person, you might go and look for another numbers person. But we start hiring in our image, and that's absolutely the wrong thing to do. I mean, I know for sure that my business only would need one of me. Any more than one of me would be in all kinds of trouble. So we have to make a real point of looking at the position that we're hiring for and making sure that the person we're bringing in is a great fit for that. Otherwise, we're doing a disservice to ourselves and to them. You know, if you bring someone in for a position they're not designed for, that's not on them, that's on you and as a business owner. And hey, we all make massive hiring mistakes, especially in the early days. But something you learn, you get better at, and you learn to ask advice and surround yourself with great people for. But I think that becomes important and underestimate things that you can do to help when you're building a team. Does that all make sense? That makes a lot of sense, and I appreciate you bringing up that it's not, you know, it's not always about money, and uh, you can't necessarily just throw money at a problem, and people don't get more loyal just because you're willing to pay them more. A lot of it's the intangibles, and sometimes it's even simpler than we think, we think it is. Uh, you would be amazed uh, what you can do in terms of building up your team loyalty just by being responsive to them. Yeah, I had, yeah, I, yeah, I had, uh, uh, we have to go back almost 10 years. This is in the very early days of my business. One of my first major clients, uh, they were with us for two years. And in the last six months of the relationship, I really don't know what happened. Well, actually, I do know what happened. I later found out the person went, was going through a lot of trouble in their business themselves. And long story, I'm not going to take away from your time on this, but what it, but uh, basically, the working relationship fell apart, right? And uh, one of my major gripes about this was I would send emails reporting on stuff I did, and nobody responded to them. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I mean, sometimes it's just something real little like that. Uh, that 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 can be really really big. And then there's and then uh, I mean, we could go on and on and on. But my thought is. You know, let's look at how simple this can really be. Now, in the case of my web development firm, I actually know the answer to that, which is I was dealing with independent contractors and not employees. And as long as you are, uh, as long as you're working with somebody who has their own business and you're a client of theirs, that's not the same as them being a part of your business, no matter how much they feel for your company or how much they love what you do or how much you're their favorite client, because they're an entrepreneur too. Uh, so the best solution, I was told this by several people who have looked at my model and tried to urge me to revive it like I ever would, <laughs> is to uh, get full-time employees. 
And I see the logic behind that. I, I certainly do, because now you have somebody who's focused entirely to your company, and your success is their success in a new and more profound way, and that's all well and good. And I can see how that can make you a lot more successful. I personally just don't want to. I think there's other ways that I can leverage and grow my business, so I think that it's just a matter of what you really want to do. Now, I mentioned at the beginning, when, when we discussed this in the green room before we went online here, is you're calling in today from Portugal, which is almost uh, a third of the way around the globe from where I'm sitting, and we're having a real-time conversation. Uh, what are some of the strategies, Kemi, that you use in your business that mean you have not only financial freedom, but freedom of location? And the reason I want to bring this up is because we all know the – uh, the stereotype or the caricature of the realtor or the real estate agent who is somebody who has their cell phone glued to their ear 19 and a half hours a day. And they're constantly running from one house to the next and they're doing showing seven days a week and everything uh, else. And meanwhile, you're calling me from some resort in Portugal. What gives? Yeah, that's a really great question. And I think the, the honest answer is intention. As I said to you earlier in our chat, I didn't get into real estate because I'm fascinated by real estate or I particularly love buildings or anything like that. I did it because I knew and I understood the the power that it had to create wealth and to create freedom. And as a result, when I built my business, I built it with a view of not wanting to be stuck in it every day, not wanting to be the crazy person running around like a blue-ass fly with the phone stuck to their ear. So what I made steps to do as soon as I possibly could was bring in team members. So the first thing I did, as we talked about before, was look at what I was earning and what the hourly rate is to outsource some of the tasks that I didn't enjoy. And initially that became, you know, answering the phone. Because it's very rare, as you were saying when you were talking about your business, that most people want to speak to you. But actually, it's quite rare that they need to speak to you. Or even that you're the best person for them to talk to. You know, if someone calls our turnkey company and they want to know where their purchase is in in terms of completion and when they're due to close on it, I'm not the best person to speak to. I will honestly rarely have any idea. So I make sure that in every step I built a team around me that could do it. And that started with, first of all, building what I call uh, the principles of the company and our vision. So even when it was just me and I was kind of my lonely old self, I yeah. wrote down the things that mattered to me. And they were things like being creating predictable results, not taking unnecessary risks. It was doing the right thing by our clients and by our tenants. And we had this whole list of things that eventually amounted to what I now have as our mission statement, which is professional, profitable, and ethical real estate investing. So I then began to build systems around that. So if I'm saying to you, you as potentially my client, Adam, you know what, I'm going to find you a portfolio, I'm going to build it, Going back to my mission statement, I need to communicate with you daily. I need to be communicating with the attorney or whoever's dealing with the closing daily. I need to be potentially dealing with the homeowner daily to make sure the deal doesn't fall out of bed. So I would write everything down and build a whole system around it. And what I was doing without realising was I was systemising my business. So I could then bring in, first of all, an admin person and say, look, this is what I do every day. Here's the bit of paper. There are clients off you go. And they began in the early days just calling the homeowner and the attorney, and then I would liaise with the client. And by 
building these steps in and by constantly writing down what I was doing. And you know, I'm literally talking pen and paper. This was not sophisticated. There was no high-tech anything here. This was just me writing down what I was doing and what had to be done and then figuring a way to get someone else to do it as the time came up. So I could gradually extract myself from the company. Now, while I have freedom of location, I, I'm in Portugal now, most of my business is I don't know, probably 70% from the UK and 30% in the US, I do have to, of course, check in. So I have daily reports from my team, I have charts that I look at, we have spreadsheets so I can see at any point what's going on and I can pick up the phone and I can talk to them or I might jump on a plane and go back to London and, and meet with them. So being extracted from your company isn't the same as being um, negligent in any way or uh, not paying attention, but it means that actually I don't have to be at number one high street to answer the phone that day. And that's the real key to it. And the space that I've created for myself is so valuable, both for me personally, but also for our company, because I get to travel, I get to meet interesting people, and I get to build partnerships that massively increase the value of our business in a way that I could never do if I had to be stuck in the office from 8 till 7, I could only escape for a lunch break. Yeah, uh, you know, as I was listening to all this, uh, I... I think it's really great, and again, we're again talking about leverage, and we're talking about getting the right people in the right places, and you doing the right things. And part part of my work with some of our uh, our titanium level clients here at the Business Creators Institute is making sure you're truly using your resources. And uh, there there's something you hit on that triggered this for me, which is uh, I'm thinking one of our clients in particular. Well, not all of our clients. Actually, this is a trend. Let me let me be fair. It's actually a trend where uh, they will find themselves asking their high-level people to do low-level stuff when they already have the low-level people who are who are optimized to do the low-level stuff very quickly. There's a reason why things are at different levels. Uh, if you understand what I'm saying, so. Uh, just because somebody's a quote-unquote VIP or it's a quote-unquote big deal, they'll want their $250 an hour person to step in to personally handle a transactional episode uh, that the person who they pay $45 an hour is supposed to handle. Now, not only is that going to cause resentment with your $250 an hour person who's saying, wait a minute, this is a little under my pay grade, but it's also taking away and going to demoralize your $45 an hour person who may be on their way to becoming a $250 an hour person. So now you're stunting their growth besides, because we all start somewhere and we work our way up. Uh, because they're saying, what, um, I'm only good to do the routine stuff. I can't handle the big guys. What the hell's up with that? So, uh, so what I've developed is uh, when my clients would come to me and you know, I'm doing my $250, $300 an hour work, and they wouldn't want me to stop everything and push through a credit card or email somebody a password, I say, no, you have somebody else to do that. They have to do it. I don't, you know, it doesn't matter if it's going to take an extra two hours for it to happen. Uh, you hired that person for a reason and you set guidelines, expectations, and parameters in your business. Uh, but there, I'll tell you, there's one thing that I make sure that all my clients know how to do, and this may sound uh, you know, almost ironic is the nicest way I can put it, given what I just said, which is I always make sure that my clients know how to process money. 
Because if you have somebody on a telephone and they're saying, I'm ready to pay you right now, I'm holding the credit card in my hand, are you really going to say, uh, well, I have somebody that takes care of that and I'll give you a call tomorrow? <laughs> I mean, not be stupid. I, I mean, if you have a $5 million company, then you should be at a point where you're not even really talking about those types of deals anyway. The types of deals that you should be doing or handling yourself are the types that involve contracts and lawyers and wire transfers, in which case you do get the assistance involved. But if you're a small to medium-sized entrepreneurial venture, you're running one of those, and you're doing business $30,000 at a time or $40,000 at a time, uh, there is no reason or excuse for you not to be able to handle a $30,000 credit card transaction right now. Yeah, absolutely. Can't yeah. Agree more. Right. Now, we are about, let me, let me look at the time here. We are about two-thirds of the way through our time together here. And a lot of what we've discussed so far is leverage and how to properly position your human and your other assets to develop a real estate empire. We've spent a lot of time on why real estate agents, realtors, and real estate investors end up doing things like painting the walls in their units themselves when they really should hire a professional painting company or scrubbing the carpets when there are 150 cleaning companies that will show up same day and do it. Because uh, some of this stuff is just absolutely ridiculous. Uh, so what I'd like to do now is I'd like to uh, change the topic here a little bit and if you could give us some of your top tips for multiplying your wealth using real estate, because you also covered how some people get into real estate and it becomes an expensive hobby or it becomes a profitable business. So how do we multiply wealth using real estate, which everybody says, oh, you got to invest in real estate. That's where the money is. How do we get the money? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And. So yeah, let's talk about the, the standard business owner, okay? You've already got a lot on your plate, you've got a few staff, you've got your clients to deal with. There is every chance and more likely than not every possibility that you have not a lot of time or interest to spend that time in investing in real estate. In which case, stick with what I said before, leverage other people to do it for you. Find a turnkey investing company, find someone that wants to go out there and partner with them. But let's just assume you've got a little bit of cash and a little bit of time and you're willing to do that yourself. There are two ways you can go with real estate. The first is investing for capital appreciation. And that, as I spoke about before, is a little bit like gambling. You are assuming the market's going to go in the direction you want. You're assuming that things are going to keep going well. And that's not a way to multiply your wealth. The way to multiply your wealth is to buy and wait. So you need to look at properties in your area, don't go too far away, but also don't feel the need for them to be on your doorstep within a you know, 90 minutes or so is fine. And you want to find something that is going to pay you more than you can get anywhere else. And that's a really key point. So, you know, when the market's buoyant, we see people investing for a time of 3% because they assume the property's going to go up, which is frankly insane. But if you can buy, put down 20k deposit and as a result you're going to get back let's say a 12% return that's incredible you're not going to beat that more than likely so that's why you need to be looking at putting the money and there again there were a few key key points in this the first is to stick to what you know 
So if you know your town, if you know your city, if you know your, um, your, your state even, go nuts and invest in that area. You want to be looking for areas where there are high demand. So I look for a lot of gentrification, which is signs that an area is on the up. And that's when you see coffee shops start appearing, you see wine bars start appearing, you see works being done on the roads, all of these little signs that start to tell you that an area is on the up. And the really important thing about that is that if you get in then, and if you start buying property and real estate then, it will naturally take a really high upturn as the area becomes more developed. Because we all know, don't we, Adam, you see, everyone says, oh, this is the next best thing, or this is the next big area. Right. And by the time that's hit the paper, the, the, the curve is gone. So you need to be the one that's spotting that. So have a look in your area for where this work is happening, where there are signs that that things are going to get a little bit exciting. See, yeah, if, I, if, I can just, if I can just stop you right there, I know you're about to go to number two. I want to make sure people hear this because this applies to real estate and this applies to all forms of entrepreneurship. So there's some translation you may need to do. But I want you all to hear what Kemi just said because if you get this, you got the whole purpose of tuning in today. Uh, what she said is, don't wait for the newspaper to tell you where the hot new area in real estate is because by the time the newspaper says it or the financial reports say it, uh, all the people who are in the know have already grabbed it up. You're, you're going to be lucky to get table scraps, and you're not going to get the deals that everybody else has already gotten. Uh, you look for some of the clues. So if uh, suddenly there's a shopping center going up, or you notice there's a new gas station, or traffic starts to get heavier in a certain part of town. These are clues that people are moving in that direction. Or you see that there's suddenly a lot of grand opening signs as you drive through a certain area. That's usually a clue that people are moving in. So think about some of those indicators, say, on the internet. What are some of the grand opening signs? What are some of the traffic increases that you're going to see that are adjacent to the business you want to be in that will help you get into that business before a lot of other people do. Uh, for instance, um, you know, uh, a friend of mine has gotten involved. Uh, I can't remember the name of the company, but uh, they are involved in a multi-level marketing opportunity that sells leggings. And they are just cleaning up at this thing. I mean, they've already, within just two months, completely shut down their previous business. They're making five times the money they used to. And it wasn't because they read an article that said leggings are the next big thing. Uh, they decided to get into the business because they noticed they were suddenly seeing a lot of ads for leggings. <laughs> Nobody announced that leggings are the big thing. They just said, huh, a lot of people are advertising for leggings. They're saying that they have leggings for sale. People wouldn't be investing in advertising this stuff unless other people were really interested in buying leggings. So they found an opportunity to distribute leggings, and they're making an absolute killing. Said, didn't wait for an article. That's didn't wait, didn't that. wait for that guru to put on the free webinar that says, learn how to make untold hidden riches in leggings. They just noticed there was a lot of advertising, people selling leggings. I mean, those are the little indicators you need to look for. Now, I'm, I apologize I had to interrupt there, but I wanted our listeners to hear that. That is a business creation hotspot right there. Now, tell us number two. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true, and I'm glad you highlighted that further. Number two, again, comes back to leverage. So let's assume you've got that, um, that 20,000 pot of cash. 
you can go and you can continue to work and try and save up to another couple of years trying to make that an entire payment for a property. Or actually, you can use that 20K as a down payment for an 80K property. And that means that the amount of rent you're going to get in is increased and the value of your, your wealth has increased dramatically. Because instead of, let's say, you wait and you save up to you can you have $50,000 and you can buy something outright, you've gone, you've put 20K in, and as a result, you own something that's worth $80,000. Your net worth and your, your wealth has increased dramatically. But for a lot of people, it's starting at the beginning. So maybe you've only got $5,000. And, you know, it's a lot of people that are like, well, what can I do with $5,000? I want to get into real estate. And there's a great strategy that I use uh, and we use really heavily at the moment. And it's a strategy that's predominantly for sharers. So if you look around you at the moment, you can see that property prices are likely going up and rental prices are going up. So there's a really great trend of young professionals and professionals in general sharing houses. You might get three or four professionals sharing a house and they'll share the, the communal areas, the kitchen, the, the living room, the reception room, but they'll have their, their bedroom to themselves. Most often, however, it's the homeowner that arranges that. So the homeowner is a landlord or someone that used to live there and they've got to arrange to get three or four or five renters in and do all that work themselves. And they have zero interest in doing that. Absolutely none. I haven't yet met one that finds it of any interest. So what I say to you is, look, go out there and find homeowners that have properties on the market to rent, that are looking for renters, that are looking for maybe families or individuals. So they want to rent their home out for, I don't know, $700, $1,000 a month. And what you're going to do is go to them and say, listen, I am going to guarantee your rent. I'm going to pay you your seven, eight hundred dollars a month every month, guaranteed without fail. I will become your tenant. And then what you're going to do is go out there and find three, four, or five renters, people that are young professionals that want to reduce their cost of living but live in a high quality property, and you're going to put them in. And you might charge them three, four, five hundred dollars a month for the rent of their individual room and use of the communal facilities. So all you're doing is arbitraging the, the rent in that place. You explain fully and clearly to the homeowner who is made up. Because let's be honest, if someone came to you, Adam, and said, look, I'm going to pay you 100% of your market rent. I'm going to take care of the maintenance. I'm going to take care of the tenant. You've got no fees. You've got no management. You've got nothing to worry about. I'm the only person you can speak to. And you'd be like, amazing. And then as the renter, someone comes to you and says, listen, I've got a room here for you. All the bills are included. It's fully furnished. You have nothing to worry about bar paying the rent. And if you have any problems, you come to me. They are so happy. It's, it's a service that's so in demand, but no one at the moment is doing it. And as a result, you get to take the cash in the middle. So let's say you pay the homeowner $800 a month, and you have four renters that you're charging $500 a month. After all the fees and all the um, the utilities, sorry, and some of the taxes, you might be paying, including the rent, $1,200 a month, which leaves you with $800. So you are making $800 a month cash flow from a property you don't even own. Now, you do have to furnish that, and you do have to do a bit of marketing to get it. So the first one might cost you one or $2,000 to set up, but once it does, it's cash flowing you $800 a month. And that, I believe, is one of the quickest and most effective ways to build your wealth in real estate because you're making huge cash flows from properties you don't even own. 
And then if you're really smart, you compound all of that cash flow, you save it up as a down payment to buy something you own. So you have what cash flow can probably don't own, and then you've then got that cash, you've put it into something that you're going to physically own so you get the capital uplift from. And that is a massive wealth multiplier right there. Right. I, I think that's fan, it's absolutely fantastic, uh, and, I, and I love that thinking. Now, we have a few minutes left here, and one of our listeners who knew you were going to be on the show wanted me to ask this question. If you can entertain an audience question for us. Uh, and here it that's is. Cool. And here it is. You know, we're seeing this trend all around the world with uh, services like Airbnb, where people are renting out rooms in their houses and using that as a revenue center. So this person is asking, uh, what is the feasibility? Let's say that they wanted to buy up some houses real close to where they live, so it's real convenient for them, and uh, not actually live in these houses and not sell them, but just you know, divide them up into several different rooms or several different uh, hostel spaces or what have you and simply use them to generate Airbnb income. Is this a viable model? Is this possible? Absolutely. It's more than viable. It is one of the fastest growing industries at the moment. Airbnb is one of the fastest growing models uh, we've ever seen. And as a as an industry, it is enormous at the moment. And the, the incredible thing with it is that everyone in the know is making an absolute killing, if I'm entirely honest. This is a fantastic model. And it's a model that runs parallel to what I was just talking about. It's saying, listen, you want to do this. You want to come to, I don't know, Cincinnati, New York, wherever you want to go, and you don't want to pay crazy rates or you don't want to be in a hotel. So I'm going to provide you this service. And as a result, you're going to pay a bit of a premium, but not a lot. And it's this meeting in the middle and this arbitraging of, of assets that is so powerful in the Airbnb model. Now, there's a couple of things to, to be aware of, and they are in any way that don't detract from it, but they're things you need to be aware of. So if you're going to do the Airbnb model solely, you need to be cautious that there might be some gaps. So the amount you charge has to be enough to cover the, the gaps you have there. You know, you might look or expect to have a 20 to 30% vacancy rate, as opposed to maybe a 5% vacancy rate for something you would do to renters. Right. Um, you might expect a little bit more in damages. But in reality, uh, to offset those and the money you're getting in is not a problem at all. Personally, I combine the two. So I have properties that we that we rent out to sharers, and either when there is a gap, when there is a sharer, there's a room available or a whole property available, it then goes straight onto Airbnb while we're getting a new long-termer. So I combine the two, and that works exceptionally well. And the amazing thing about it that I've found is the last few few months, um, we're probably pushing into nine to twelve months now is that we are really aggressively now going out to homeowners and saying, look, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to put your property on Airbnb. I'm going to take care of everything, but I'm going to pay your cash every month. And they are so excited because they see the value in it. They know what you can do and what you can earn. But all they really care about is getting their rent in each and every month, and they have zero interest in anything else. So you get to have goes to them really honestly and authentically and say, look, I'm going to make some good money out of this as well. But so are you, and you're not going to even have to answer a single phone call. And if you can be that middle person to either buy those properties and run a business like that, or to go and find the, the homeowners and lease them like that, it's a fantastic market at the moment that is there for you to absolutely clean up on. 
Yeah, uh, so I appreciate that. I suspected that was the case, but the reason why we bring you on is because you know this stuff. Because that's uh, something that you know, I've thought about doing and may in fact do, and there are some other folks I know who are considering doing the same thing, which is just uh, buy a house real close to where they live and just sublet it as Airbnb and just have people moving in and out. And they can hire a management company to go in there every day and clean. It's not a big deal especially when we're talking about those revenues. But I do appreciate some things you pointed out, which is to make sure your costs are covered and don't say, ooh, Airbnb riches. Uh, it's going to be so easy to do. Because uh, is it also not true that um, you, like, let's say your, your room rents for $79 a night on Airbnb, you're only going to realize a fraction of that because Airbnb gets some of that too. Yeah, I don't think Airbnb's prices are crazy. I've got a feeling their rent, I can't remember, it's about 8 percent something like an eight to twelve percent fee for using their platform right so yet you've got to take that off you've got to take off any fees for managing um, and then like you say for leveraging and sticking in other people but build that into your cost you know people expect to pay a bit more um, but I don't know about you but I love Airbnb I love staying in someone's oh, home as opposed to a hotel so I'm happy to pay a decent amount to actually get that Oh, me, me too, me too. Unfortunately, we're just about out of time here. I would go on for two hours about how I'll stay in an Airbnb over the supposed benefits of the $574 a night room at the official seminar location. Uh, but uh, what I need to do is I need to give you 30 seconds to share with our listeners who are ready to take things to the next level uh, how they can engage with you. Uh, do you have a gift for us? Do you have anything for us? Yeah, for sure. So everything I've talked about today, I've built a membership program, a membership platform that's completely free, but we've got whole training modules on the Airbnb model, on how to build your wealth, on how to leverage other people, how to build partnerships. So if you want to get in this but you don't have the cash, or you've got cash but you don't have the time, you can go onto this membership model and you can join us, join the community, and, and learn everything kind of we've got to share with you in that. It's completely free. If you head over to kemi.gift, K-E-M, that's another I, dot gift, you can register for free there, join the membership platform, and join our closed community of people out there doing great stuff. Fantastic. So we're just about the top of the hour here. So first of all, um, let me just say, um, Kemi Egan of freedomacademies.com, thank you so much for sharing with us. And everybody, make sure to go to Kemi. Dot gift. Just go to our website and look for Kemi's profile. You'll see the link there. So thank you very much for being with us. It's been an honor and an education. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor and a pleasure, and I hope everyone got some value from it. Absolutely. And for everybody listening, this is Adam Homie, host of the Business Creators Radio Show. Please, please, please visit our website, www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. Check out our previous episodes. Write down our upcoming episodes. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Do all those things. Let us help you win at the game of business and marketing. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.